You're listening to Two Guys Talking Wine with Michael Pincus and Andre Pru. Hey, Michael. Andre, how are you? I'm great, except once again, I'm still stuck in Toronto and you're at the St. Catherine studio with another guest beside you. Yes, we're doing another garage talk. <laughs> Best place to be talking and drinking lots of wine. <laughs> uh, and this is going to be the, this- the, the next session of our legacy series even though we've we, already we should have had this guy on long ago we should like, have even before len panicetti this guy should have been on and and what reminded me is because during uh the height of the pandemic let's call it i bumped into this guy every time i went to the lcbo not a word of a lie and today's guest is angelo pavan the uh you, you have to be the oldest. Uh, I got to be careful how I say this. Yeah, you've, you're already treading on thin ice there, Michael. Continuously, continuous winemaker in Niagara. Would you not be now? Yes, I'm the old. I think I'm the oldest. Or the longest. The, the longest. Long, the longest. And the most, yeah. And since uh, 86, 86 was our first vintage. So I've been working since 86. For the same winery. Yeah, yeah. Partners with Lender, yes, with, uh, so, with Lens, so, 86. So before we get into the, the, the nuts and bolts, we we talked to Len Penichetti about Cave Spring. And I think if, if you haven't listened to the interview, now would be a good time to go back and listen to it. If you don't want to listen to it, I think for me, the two biggest takeaways from that chat was that Cave Spring is the house that Riesling built. And then the second thing was just a philosophy in, in viticulture was what evolved Cave Spring to where it is now was to not be running vine hospitals and finding the right varieties to grow in the region. Yes, absolutely. Uh, very much so. And yeah, so that was 2017 when you interviewed Len. We had made all our final decisions by then and we can go through it today definitely don't want to uh, yeah we're not in the vine hospital business and uh, because certain uh, varietals varieties just don't uh, do well and uh, we've learned a lot since uh, you know our first plantings way back in the 70s so yeah we haven't changed Uh, we haven't gone off course since uh, your talk with Len back in 2017 you know I was talking to Angelo and I and I said um uh, he said, you guys have been doing this quite a bit. And I said, yeah, we're on episode 100. And he goes, no, you're on episode 200 and something. So uh, Angel's a little more up to date on than what I am. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> so uh, those two takeaways uh, there in conversation with uh, Len, Andre. So obviously everyone... Most people, everyone, when they hear Cave Spring, they'll, oh yeah, know your Riesling or love your Riesling. And it happens not just here. I remember years ago, you know, crossing the border to do tastings and then at US Customs and I have all this paperwork and you've got wine. Yeah, where are you going? And uh, so I tell him, I said, so what is it? And I mentioned Cave Spring. And I remember the U.S. Customs person, the lady says, I love your Riesling. <laughs> and I didn't even have to submit the paperwork. She said, just go. So, you know, great following in upstate New York with, uh, with the Riesling. And uh, obviously now with COVID, things have changed a bit. So, um, yeah, so yeah, that's, it, it is Riesling that we started with way back when, you know, no one knew of it. I mean, we thought we knew Riesling, but it was the pseudo-German Riesling. When I was in university drinking the uh, uh, Blue Nun and whatever. Black Leaf, Tower. Black Tower. You were black or blue. I just had them all lined up there, right? And I thought I was a real wine connoisseur. I didn't know anything about wine at that time. <laughs> we, you know, who knew it was Riesling? And when we started, you literally couldn't give a give a ball of Riesling away. I remember that in our tastings and the old the pre-vintages stores and stuff like that, the four main ones in, in, in Toronto. And uh, But things have changed, obviously. And, uh, you know, it is our signature, if not one of the very few signature varieties here in Niagara. And uh, it has put us on the international uh, wine map. I mean, 
I, I've been invited and I've given a number of talks in, 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 in Europe and in, in Italy and in Germany and I've poured Rieslings and back vintages up some of the biggest names in Germany and I can't say scary shit. So I uh, concerned here, <laughs> you know, well, how would this hold up? And uh, yeah, well, you no. Can, you so, can say whatever uh, you want. You can, you, Pardon? Can, you can say whatever you want. It's just we have a swear jar where every few months we make a donation to Brian Schmidt's Haiti efforts because uh, he's keeping us honest and making sure that we keep our language clean. But if an expletive is required, at least it's going to a good cause. Okay. Yeah. So you're, you're more than welcome. Anyway, you know, no, I mean, you know, you think of how are how's this how's our, the wine going to be received, especially in a blind tasting. And I remember I had an older vintage, and uh, there was Grosset Polish Hill in that flight, and uh, some big name Germans, and uh, we more than held our own in that flight. There's no question about that. And as you know, Andre, uh, when I have a winemaker over, I always pull out some very interesting stuff. Yes. Just because I can and make you feel bad and jealous. So I do, uh, I want to start, considering he's talking about about old Riesling, uh, I have gone in deep into the cellar to find something, Angelo, for you. Okay. And while you're pouring this, Michael, what I should say is back a little over a month ago, um, because Len's wife, Helen, Young, we both have the same birthday, June 23rd, so I was invited over, and I brought a bottle of our 99 CSV Riesling. It's our first vintage, holding up beautifully. So, Andre, I uh, I obviously have to tell him it's Riesling because uh, he'll know the bottle. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not like it was a Bordeaux bottle that I transferred the stuff into. Mm. But we got a, a, a lovely golden color. It's um, yeah. It's a golden color, but you know, it's not that faded riesling character that you get to when you know it's like that wet hay or anything like that. Not still quite. You know, there's a lot of apple character yeah. in here, very much so. I think the uh, the acid's kind of fallen away a little bit, but mm-hmm. I I really I really am digging the uh, the definite apple quality to this wine. Just a touch of petrol, but like it's it's yeah, not hardly much. noticeable. Um, now it's interesting to mention a screw cap what I'm getting here because Riesling's under screw cap and white wines, but Riesling's under screw cap after a number of years tend to develop acquire develop this toasty character, and it's not just here because I remember at a conference with them. Uh, Louisa Rose of Yolumba, right? That's okay. her. And I thought, I said, no, the wine's reductive. She said, no, it's a toasty character. Actually, that's Riesling under screw cap after a number of years. But I don't get it here. No, this is uh, it's actually fresh, Andre. You're missing yeah. out something good. Well, we, you we, guess, we've talked about this you often. The year? We, we, we've, done, we've talked about this often when we've done the, like, the, you know, we're rating your cellar to taste old Riesling because Erica won't drink Riesling anymore. But it's been pretty consistent across the board that the wines under screw cap hold up like quite a bit better than yeah, the ones under cork. under cork. So I'm going to ask you, it's just the year. You don't have to tell me what, what line, because you have seven or eight different Rieslings. That would be a tough one to call. But if you can do it, I'm impressed. I, I would I also be impressed. I mean, because I rarely go back to the ones under screw cap, right, because checking them. But it's got all that half. So I'd say it's roughly 10 years old. Two thousand and eight. That's a two thousand eight wow. Dolomite Riesling, Andre. Wow, that's so. T- and Dolomite, I forget what our first vintage of Dolomite was. It was around that time, seven I, or eight. I want to think it was six, seven, six, or eight. six. Yeah, okay. Could have been six because it was a really. Uh, and it was a great. This this is surprising for two thousand and eight because two thousand eight was okay vintage. It was it was a good vintage. It wasn't a great vintage. Okay, you know, it was an average vintage. I yeah, think is the that, best that's the call. best way to put it. It was an average. We had a difficult fall in 2008. I remember yeah. that, especially with Riesling. And that's so what I remember people surprising. saying as well. I, I remember people, people, people saying that as well. I think if if we go back to the whole philosophy of not running a vine hospital, because Cave Spring tends to work with more cooler climate varieties as opposed to the Bordeaux varieties, I think the people who were making. Cab Sauve Merlot in 2008 had a harder time than people working with Riesling or, or Pinot or Chardonnay. Yeah, I think it would have been difficult to ripen the Cab Sauve uh, in 2008. Maybe not Merlot, 
But then the problem is Merlot will be bouncing back from some, you know, cold winter, as it always has to do there. Uh, and uh, yeah, so 2000 capsule, it would have would have been very difficult to ripen it. Uh, but Chardonnay, yeah, the early ripening varieties. And Riesling, I mean, it doesn't matter. I mean, you know, you can hold on to it later in the year and, uh, and, and pick it quite late the way we have done. And um, you still get some, you know, decent phenolic ripeness, unlike Cab Sauve. Uh, if, if the weather, you know, gets quite cold. Uh, but mentioning varieties, can I go into what yeah, I think please. here? I mean, we've tasted the Riesling and, uh, you know, it, it's the point of, sure, uh, you know, cooler climate varieties, but what it is, and, and I don't remember now if Len went into this back then, but what we need to work with here in Niagara, which I'll talk about Niagara, so we are, uh, are varieties that will come through the occasionally colder winters, and we haven't had too many, but we have to go. We have to be careful going forward with with uh, climate change, because with climate change, we're going to have colder winters. And people say, really? Yes, because what you get is the polar vortex, and what happens with the polar vortex? We lose our lake protection. Um, which, well, which happened in 1314 yes, and 1415. Because remember, with the, with the jet stream, so it'll shoot down to Texas, right, and come back up, the cold stream. So the coldest winters we have is when the cold comes from the south, not the north. It's the polar vortex. It comes shooting back. So we don't get the, uh, the, 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 uh, the lake protection there. But anyway, regardless of that, um, so we, you know, we've, once in a while, we do have colder winters going back in the 90s. It wasn't just polar vortex back then. You know, di anyway, different uh, uh, changes there. But so the, cold, the colder winters that we, we have to deal with. But also, our growing seasons are more like older Burgundy, right? You know, the huge variations from one year to, to, to the next. Yeah. Warmer years, cooler years, and so on. So we need varieties that we can ripen consistently well that we can ripen every year okay so it's not just a matter you can get varieties that are cold tolerant but then if you can't ripen them what's the point I mean if it's green and you know there are there are some of those out there mm. um, so we need we made varieties that I shouldn't say regardless of the growing season but you know with most growing seasons whether it's very warm or, or cooler that we can deal with it you know, do, adjusting our viticultural practices. And that's because, and we have six varieties that we work with now. Obviously, everyone knows Riesling. Chardonnay, you can do it. So we'll start with the three white varieties. It's cool climate and um, it ripens well. I mean, suits some years be more Chablis-like, other years it could be more Burgundian-like, Merceau-like even. Or California-like in some. Yeah, that could happen. And uh, then, surprisingly, and this was a discovery for us, and it was a few years ago, it's Pinot Gris or Pinot Grigio. A bit more cold sensitive than Chardonnay and, and Riesling, but um, it's still fairly cold tolerant. And since it's the earliest ripener, it's, you know, usually, it's always in September, uh, mid to late September. So uh, that's the third one, though it's difficult because... Sometimes September's can be too warm, and for both Pinot families, the Pinot Gris and the Pinot Noir, which we'll come to. But those are the three there. You can ripen those any year. Okay. They're fairly well. You get good phenolic ripeness there. And then with the reds, Pinot Noir, obviously, um, you know, because again, it's late September, sometime in a cooler year, early October. So not a problem there. We can hang it. You know, we, we can ripen uh, uh, Pinot Noir. And then it's relative sort of geographically, which is Gamay, and so underappreciated. And some of my favorite reds out of Niagara in the history of Niagara have been Gamay, ours and then others like uh, the old 13th Street with Ken Douglas. They made those 98, 99s and a blind. That was pit. the name I was looking for last week. You know, and I have a friend at California, Santa Rosa, who hates Gamay because, you know, they mix them up there in California, Gamay. Yeah. Pinot. So I gave him a pour of a bottle of 99, blind. He says, oh, I love this Pinot Noir. Nice. Uh, That's and, great. And Gamay out of Niagara, in ours too. The great thing about Niagara Gamay, depending on what's done, 
ages and it, and, and it acquires Pinot-like characteristics, very much so, especially if you put it in barrel, not older barrels. And uh, so Gamay for sure, and, uh, and, and get a lot of complexity with some development. And then the third one is a Bordeaux variety. And to me, my favorite to work with, which is Cabernet Franc. Um, again, cold tolerant, you can ripen it every year. And the light bulb went off in my head in 2014. That was a really cool year. And we ripened Cab Franc. Uh, you know, alcohol level is not a, you know, sugar and alcohol, but in 14%, you adjust your viticultural practices, you, you know, you make sure you're not cropping too heavy, and you can ripen it. Now, there'll be differences from year to year, just like Great Burgundy, right? I mean, comparing, for example, the, what's well, 07 was a warmer, even comparing, you know, uh, 2009, 2010 for some older ones there. So we, we get those you know, differences with Cap Franc, but it's a variety that we can work with year in and year out. And um, yeah, very much so. Andre, you were about to say something and. Uh, actually, you, you know what? Like, I know we're kind of talking a little bit about like the viticultural pra- practices and what goes on with Cave Spring, but I want to talk to Angel just a little bit about about your story, and maybe let's well, go, before, go back to the beginning. Before we do that, and, and yes, let's do it. But let's pull out let's pull out the Pinot Gris. I think. If, okay. I have it in the fridge here. If you want. No, no, here, here, here. Oh, he's got. He's brought his own wine with him. There he is. All right. Because we deliberately asked for not Riesling this time, because when we tasted with Len, we drank a lot of Riesling. Yeah. And so we did everything but Riesling, and thank God, anything but Chardonnay. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, first of all, really quickly, uh, why Pinot Gris? Obviously, it's 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 cold hardy enough, I guess. It ripens yeah, it's, well. It's, it ripens it's, first, you said. Yeah, it's cold hardy enough. It's not as cold sensitive as Merlot, say. Okay. Um, or Syrah, which is, or, and I'll tell you varieties that I've experimented. I've planted Semillon, Chenin. We'll come to that hopefully in a few minutes. Oh, I love your Chenin. Oh, my so, God. So, uh, but that's not cold hard, even though it's it. But anyway, so this, and we can ripen it very much so. It was a lot of work uh, to figure out how to do Pinot Gris. Pinot Gris, you'll explain why we call it Pinot Gris. As with Pinot Noir, I mean, that's why I have no hair, obviously. But, um, because you can't be greedy with either Pinot. So you got to crop it down and make sure it ripens. Because if it doesn't ripen, you're just dealing with green green wine. And we call ours Gris, um, not because it's to do with the Alsatian style, but to do a bit fuller, richer style of wine. Instead of, you know, people when I say Pinot Grigio, especially my back, my, my parents, well, my um Parents are from the Veneto, Eastern Veneto, not so much Western Veneto, but there's Pinot Grigio grown everywhere. And, you know, it's a lighter type of wine board neutral, whereas with the Pinot Gris, you're going to get some character out of it. You get it out of this here, very much of some pear character. You taste it. You can see it's got some weight in the mid-palate, eh? Mm. So you've been in the very nice way to mid five years, and Andre is now going to ask his mm. "How the hell did you get there?" question. Mm. Yeah, and Angelo, what made you decide to get into the wine business? Well, I'm a philosopher by training. <laughs> I was doing graduate work in philosophy, PhD. You would have thought the philosophy would have gone. Philosophy says, "Don't go into the wine business." But. Yeah, no, no. And well, Socrates in the symposium after drinking all night, right? Goes off and philosophizes, philosophizes next day. So, no, um, I took a couple of uh, wine appreciation courses, and I'll mention he's a dear friend of mine now, Peter Gamble. So I was living in St. Catharines. I was doing my graduate work at Guelph, but uh, I was looking for something to do in the evening, and there's these called wine appreciation. I said, kind of hooey is this stuff? I mean, oh, I'm Italian. I was drinking wine at the age of two. It was diluted, obviously, with water and stuff. So took the, those classes, you know, sensory appreciation, and uh, he did a great job explaining. First of all, he took us through the the uh, the varietal, the grape varieties, and the varietals they're made from, and uh, and all the wine laws of Europe, you know, and of the Germans and and the AOC and DOC, and then you know, just going up, sticking your nose in there and. Is it Pinot Noir? Is it Cap Sotha? Really? And then when you get to understand that stuff with a bit of training, okay, it's Cap Sotha, but is it Bordeaux? Is it California? Or name another variety. You know, I thought, 
geez, I really want to be able to do this. But more importantly, what it was, once I got to know how to taste wine and appreciate wine, it was like taking an art history course. You know, I did art history on undergraduate. It opened up a whole new aesthetic dimension. You know, because you look at paintings and art and stuff, you read great novels. But with good, great wine especially, because unfortunately I got hooked on red burgundy way back then, <laughs> which I still drink today. And, you know, you just spend minutes, minutes and half an hour just smelling it before you taste it. And you go, okay, Chambertin, you know, Beau, um, Beau Romanet, Maurice Santonier or whatever, right? And so that's the, the, the thing. So anyway... Got hooked on that stuff, and then so I thought, geez, I'm spoiled now on this wine. And I had I was teaching, you know, courses there at the university as a grad student, but I had I started the family, and uh, but I couldn't afford to buy all these expensive wines. So I thought I want to make wine. So I started making wine, and my wife at the time she noticed that gone went the stack of philosophy books, and it was all the wine books. So, you know, I taught myself. I read all the journals and the wow. textbooks and stuff. And then knowing Len, since from the age of five, okay, we went to kindergarten, I mean, great, great school, grade one, right through high school, even undergraduate university. So he had vineyards, make a long story short. So I said, let's make some wine together. So we made wine together in his basement. And then, I, th you know, it'd be nice to, I didn't want to work in a winery, you know, go somewhere. And uh, because I couldn't hold down a real job but anyway. And Andre, the real reason is I could never hold down a real job. I realized that I couldn't be an academic and, you know, deal with uh, board politics and stuff, department politics and stuff like yeah. that. Got into wine. So anyway, so you knowingly, got into the, uh, the politics of Ontario wine, exactly. which is probably just as bad it just, no, or no, worse. It worse. So knowing Len and then away we went from there because he had vineyards already, right? And what did he what did he have as as far as vineyards go like established that you wanted to work with okay so then when we started cave spring two uh no no sorry uh, the two established was planted in 78 were chardonnay and riesling and uh, but also planted by then because and, and i helped plant the, the the next generation was uh uh pinot noir gamay so those were the four 86 yeah those were the four we had the four varieties wow yeah and then from there, the cabs. So let me just as a segue into this. So then we uh, the three uh, Bordeaux varieties. And then in the late 90s, um, when, you know, we had enough acreage uh, under vine and we had more than a decade, uh, you know, of, of history. And so we could afford to experiment. So I thought, okay, let's try some different varieties, especially, which I think is a grand, the great Etherington site. You've been to our vineyards? No. Okay, you know, right, this it's a beautiful site, the, the, this big parcel. We name it after the old farmer who was there that we purchased the land from. So I planted, I think it was the first, Semillon and Shannon. Okay. okay? And uh, Semillon lasted three years, I think, before I pulled it out. Uh, zero cold tolerance, but you would think Shannon, Loire Valley, right? No, it has very little cold tolerance. That's why there's no Shannon in Canada either. There's very little, a couple of acres. When I pulled, when we pulled out our Shannon, I don't even think I told anyone. I just had it ripped out there because um, it was it was a vine hospital. We pulled out half the Shannon grown in Canada, which was three and a half acres or three acres. It was a delicious. It was a delicious yeah. wine. You kept a little bit of sweetness in it. Yeah. It was really summertime in a glass. Yeah. Uh, and and when I found out you guys were never making it again. I did shed a tear, and I very rarely shed a tear over over something that's not going to be made that much more. And even cold tolerant, it's difficult for us to ripen Shannon because uh, it's just such a big cluster, so tight it breaks down. And then in conversation with some South Africans, because I think they'd make the best, the greatest Shannon Blanc. Yeah. They do, especially the barrel fermented stuff. Um, and they were telling me their problems with breakdown and stuff. So I thought. What the hell am I trying to do here? No, so uh, it doesn't belong in Niagara. So those are the two ones that we experiment with. We already had Merlot in the ground. That's gone. That's a vine hospital. Syrah, you know, yeah, even in a cool year, 
lower sugars, lower ripeness. You can get some spiciness out of it, some peppery character. But it, it's not cold tolerant, and it just grows like a weed around here. Can't stop the growth. And there's others, and they do it. I mean, it's, you know, look, you know, people want to work harder and stuff like that. But, uh, hey, maybe that's my, the philosophy, the background on me. I don't want to work that hard, okay, where things, where, where it's difficult and you don't know if you're going to succeed year in and year out. Andre, what do you think of the Pinot Gris? Um, I mean, as far as Pinot Gris goes, I know you and I are both fairly critical of it. Um, it does have really nice texture. There is, like, a slight bitter note on the finish that I actually find adds to the wine, really makes it... Um, it's, it's something I hate the term food wine, but this is definitely a food wine. This is something that would help keep the palate cleansed between dishes, between courses. I could see this definitely holding up to uh, some, you know, large Italian style cuisine. I, maybe this is Angela. Maybe this is just you pumping your heritage into the into the wine and make sure we've got a Pinot Gris, a Pinot Gris to go with uh, some uh, some pasta here. With pasta? Yeah. Oh, yeah, cream sauce, I hope you're talking about. No, I'm talking tomato sauce, like tomato basil or a puttanesca, something like that. Yeah, yeah, no, so today for lunch I had pastas left over with roasted tomatoes and a bit of tuna in there. Oh, yeah. This would go with it. Totally. That would, it, it, it would work well. Um, what do I have it with, the Pinot Gris? Uh, it, you know, fish, obviously, I mean, um, so... If you're vegetarian, no problem. It does great with just grilled vegetables and stuff like that, right? Totally. And that you see, pick up a hint of bitterness. You said on on there at the end on the finish there, Andre. Yeah, but it's it's not anything over overpowering. Powering is almost more of a, a textural thing where it's just like, you know, I've yeah. got I've got strong chalk, like a really strong mineral note, and then yeah. just at the end of the mineral, it's kind of like a little bit of, oh, okay, this is uh, so. Yeah. So what that's from. It's a little bit of skin contact, okay? And I just like to do that not much. On, on certain varieties we do, you know, not on Riesling. Well, some Riesling, but on the Pinot Gris we do. Um, just not to get any color or anything like that, but you're right, you get more of that minerality and, 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 and you get a bit of that phenolic character. And to me, I, I like that. You know, I mean, there are white wines now are very phenolic. You know, they're fermented on the skins and stuff like that. But just a little bit of a, a bite on the finish, I think, to me, this sometimes it, it, it you know, stretches out the uh, the the, um, the finish of it. I, I totally agree. Like, I mean, it's it's something that's that's there, but by no means do I think it takes away from the wine. It's definitely it's definitely a winemaking decision as opposed to someone who, you know, say forgot the wine on its skins for an extra day or something like that. Yeah, that'd be too much. Ah. So, Andre, as you were uh, chatting about Pinot Gris, I decided to uh, pull out my second surprise for um, for Angelo. This Rub one is it under in, why don't you? I did. It's already done. It's already poured. We've already tasted it at this end. You gabbed away a little bit about Pinot Gris, which was fine with me. Um, obviously, it's going to be another Riesling, uh, but... Um, uh, and again, this one's under cork versus the first one, which was under under screw cap. See what Angelo thinks so, of this one, or what he what he thinks it is, if you want. No, well, it has a bit of residual, so I don't know if this is what we call now our Riesling NP. Now, it has that apple character in there, but you know what I get for such an old Riesling? I get some grapefruit character in there. Mm. Oh, it's that pink grapefruit. Maybe I'm making it up. I think you might be making it up, but you think it, I'm yeah, making yeah. it up. There's no so problem. Maybe it's the residual I'm picking up in there. Uh, Michael just makes stuff up too, so there's no reason you can't. I know he makes the stuff up. If but. it's uh, if it's pink grapefruit, there's some sugar on it. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? It's mm -hmm. that pink grapefruit in the morning mm -hmm. where you're throwing a bunch mm -hmm. of sugar on it, mm -hmm. so that it masks the the tartness. Because there's very little tartness in this wine. No, there isn't. Yeah, yeah. So no, I, yeah, I don't mean that. I mean the sweetness. Yeah, yeah. not the tartness. So more of a pink, uh, pink grapefruit cocktail. Yeah, yeah. That and sounds like a still, 2006 to me. Still quite a bit. It's like a fruit salad in this thing. Yeah, it's, it? it's a, a. At first, I wasn't a big fan, and the more I sipped on it, the more it got interesting. It kind of filled yeah, out. Yeah, yeah. So, any idea what year or? Again, I don't. I don't want you to guess the uh, the line because, as I said, you have seven different yeah, reasons yeah, at least. There's so the other one's 08. Yeah. So Andre said 06. I don't know if you guys were chatting about nope. this beforehand. Nope. Um, 
but it looks like it could be an 06 color wise. Okay. 09. Ooh, okay. So. 09 was a really coldest vintage on record. That's yeah. why the residual yeah. on this. Yeah. Aha. 09, good for acidity. Yeah. Although that one doesn't seem to have it as much as I was expecting. Well, it's there's probably residual. So in 09, as in 03, two extremely uh, cool vintages where I left more residual. It was very difficult to ripen in yeah. 09 extremely difficult uh the reds forget it yeah in that year like, great, great year for so blanc probably <laughs> yeah we still had so blanc at that time but that's why then the, the yeah. hint of residual uh, not the hint but the noticeable residual on, yeah. on that one there and uh surprising because i would tell you right now 09 was such a difficult vintage that i don't think any much is holding up still I, i'm surprised one it does hold up and it does definitely tastes older than the 08 yeah yeah and it'll it'll taste older than 05 for sure yeah for example which yeah. was a hot vintage which would have yeah been. yeah no so yeah and that's hot it was a hot vintage but now so when people think so our best rieslings i'll tell you were the warm the hot the warmer vintages uh 02 which is a best vintage in the history of niagara got stunning i'm drinking you say it's better than 12 and better oh yeah than 16? yeah yeah i'm drinking 02 now okay uh, 02 05 07 10, 12, 12 was too hot. We didn't ripen. At 15% alcohol, we did not ripen. Yeah. That's when the light bulb went off in my head about California hang time. We got the massive sugar accumulation, but we didn't get phenolic ripeness. Yeah. And it's illegal for us to water back. Yeah. So we can't do what California does. Got it. Okay? It was, it was too hot. And they're still not ready to drink the 2012s. Um, 2010 yet what i'm drinking now talking about older vintages uh 02 across the board and cab franc and i should have thought when next time you have me on i'll bring i'm drinking 05 and 07 cab franc he's, he's inviting himself back and i think we should have him 05 and yeah 07. as long as as long as it's not without me i mean wow. i'm i'm just keep getting left behind here so you know i i have an, i have a question i think is the next logical evolution in into um how you got into winemaking is that you, you went and you researched, but you did drop a bit of a nugget there that you were drinking Burgundy, and I'm guessing like moderate to high-end Burgundy. Um, when you developed a winemaking philosophy, and obviously when you're running a, a business, and we're working with Len to run a business, you need to make sure that um, that you're doing something that's sustainable. But when you were tasting this Burgundy, is this something that you saw parallels with what was happening in, in Niagara? Or like, how did you really um, set in place your philosophy for winemaking when you started making wine in Niagara? Okay, yeah. So, no, I didn't have Burgundy in mind in, in, when we were making wine. You know, we were starting to make wine in Niagara. Yes. Didn't know if we could do it, but I'll come back to that. Um, the philosophy we had... It was a pretty simple philosophy because since I didn't go to wine school, okay, I didn't have much chemistry. I had to teach myself, so I really couldn't fiddle around and fool around with, with winemaking, right? Yeah. It was just basically still what we do today, what, you know, what, um, what we were doing in the vineyards. And uh, it was pretty hands-off, uh, you know, fermenting the stuff. Um, uh, back then, we were using cultured yeast. Now we do the spontaneous fermentation. Um, but it's pretty hands-off. I'd never worked with additives and stuff like that because I need to drink the stuff, and I just want to drink real stuff. You know, anybody can make purdy wine. It's not difficult to make purdy wine, especially with enzyme treatments. You can make these blousy, aromatic wines, and they taste like water. So hands-off. The biggest learning curve for me... Um, and, and with Riesling was more of, you know, the balance of residual sugar and acidity there and when to pick it because we were picking too early back then. The biggest learning experience was uh, with anything that we barrel aged. And here it was a real learning experience because I shouldn't say I ruined a lot of wines, but they weren't great wines because it was too much barrel treatment. So remember back in the 80s and early 90s when Australian Chardonnays were all the rage. Not yeah. that they had barrel in them. That was more wood additives. Yeah. People wanted that wood stuff. I, 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 hate to, I hate to say this and rub it in, but in the late 80s, I was, I see, I was seven in 1989. Oh, okay. You were seven? Yes. Uh, yeah. You weren't drinking it that 
Oh, okay. He was in Saskatchewan, <laughs> okay, so they, yeah. uh, they put it in his bottle, I think. Yeah. So um, we, we were over-oaking everything, and um, we had to learn to back off. And the big, the big, the biggest, the word, the wine where I really screwed it up the most. I'll tell you because my learning here, and was in 2002. And I mentioned it was the greatest vintage, and all our wines are holding up except for one, our Pinot Noir, because back then, not just myself but everyone in the industry was using the Bordeaux approach to Pinot Noir. That full barrel treatment, it doesn't work. And like today, to this day, if I smell old contribution on Pinot Noir, you know, my, you know what I say? Fire the winemaker, fire the winemaker. Uh, no, no, it's a totally different variety. So uh, always hands off and uh, we didn't know what we could do. I mean, there was no history back then, Andre. It's not like, you know, well, you're in Burgundy or you're in Tuscany and you've got hundreds of years, a thousand years of history. Oh, let's try to fine tune this and fine tune that. Yeah. There was nothing for us to fine tune because we didn't have anything to work with. And we had to, uh, you know, find our own way, both in the winemaking and with the varieties that we could grow. And not, not much has changed. Nothing has changed except for it's even more hands off in our winemaking philosophy now. Like we're, Moving away, many are from you know barrel contents, the barriques to the bigger vats, the botte and the fooders what we're using, the spontaneous fermentation, you know, so they're even getting more terroir, and that word gets so bandied about all the time, you know, but and what terroir is about? I really this is going to spew on this. What terroir is about? I'll tell you. The variety is very important here. So terroir is about when someone says. Our six varieties, definitely five of them have terroir because they've been there for over 30 years. Terroir is a, is a great variety, a variety that is in there for the long haul. So you can make great wines, you know, in this year and maybe in a few years. But if it's a vine hospital and those vines are dead, you have to replant them every five or ten years. There's no terroir there contribution. Okay? So in our case, our Chardonnay our Rieslings. They're all from the mid, some of them are from the mid 70s. We have the oldest intact blocks in Canada. It's terroir. And, and that's hands off because you don't have to bring up, you know, suckers and try to rehabilitate these, you know, vines that are dying and stuff like that. So uh, anyway, uh, and that's the definition of hand terroir for me is in winemaking philosophy, viticulture philosophy, hands off. Yeah, that's... A bit of knowledge, unfortunately, sometimes is too much, and um, you um, tend to ruin things. So uh, I guess before I ask the, the next question, I'm sorry, Michael, but I have an, a, another question that's a good, a good follow-up. But I've got the, um, the Blanc de Blanc open beside me, and... This is one of my favorite sparkling wines, so it's I was happy you want to open it. Yeah, yeah. I've tried this wine many a time. Go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. I absolutely, I absolutely love it. One of the best values of the LCBO. Go, Andre. No, and it was just I just I I took a look at the um at the tasting or at the note that's on the Cave Spring website. And there's something I didn't know about this wine, but so much about it makes sense. Is it 60% Chardo and 40% Chardonnay Musquet? I've always wondered why there was a floral characteristic to the Blonde de Blanc, but, and I just assumed it was 100% like plain Chardonnay, but there we go. What you've done is you've harnessed that really nice floral note. It's it's matched with, um, you know, that really crisp acidity. Um, it's just a really, like, it's a pretty wine, and it's it's really great value. I think it's still, what, like 30 bucks? Yes, 30 bucks, and thank you. Others are now are following and using Chardonnay Musquet for bubbly. I was the first, obviously, because we had quite a bit of Chardonnay Musquet. I experimented. I didn't think it was going to work the first year. I mean, you got to play around, right? Experiment. I go, wow. Especially with our 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 our, our, our Blanc de Blanc, we don't do malolactic, so you know that's why it's very crisp. And I thought that Musquet would help there with a little bit of floral character, not much. And yeah, it's it's been a success. And it's, you know, it's a clone of Chardonnay, but still 100% Chardonnay. But, yeah, it does change the profile, aromatic profile. It's, a, it's always got great acidity. It's always got great uh, uh, mouthfeel. It's always uh, – it's one of those wines that you always forget about until you see it on the shelf. And oh, you go, I don't forget oh, about yeah, this one ever. Wine. 
and then it goes on sale for a few dollars off. Yes. Like, okay, I got to stock up. Yes, and that's it. And you, you know, it's it's you mentioned the word terroir that gets gets thrown around, and I I I, I half agree with you on that. But I know when you're talking about sparkling wine, you're talking about a non-vintage sparkling wine. It's a different ball game in terms of winemaking. Your philosophy or your your goal, I'm guessing, is to make something that is fairly consistent from year to year. Obviously, factoring in that you're going to have a little bit of vintage variation, but you still want to have a consistent product with a non-vintage wine. And um, I mean, if that's your aim, then you've done very well. If that's not your aim, I'm probably insulting you right now. No, 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 no. Thank you. No, no. And yeah, we do, you know, have different vintages there. It's predominantly one vintage. We have a little bit back, you know, that we blend in. You need the consistency, obviously, you know, for for non-vintage. And when we started, we always declared a vintage. And then I said, why? We shouldn't tie your hand. We do vintage. Our CSV sparkler, obviously, in, 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 in a great year. And we leave that on the lees for five years and so on. So that, that's different. And uh, you need that flexibility, yeah, you know, for, for, for sparkling. Because some years might be very cold and quite acidic. 2012, for example, was almost too warm for bubbly. Yeah. We picked in August. Wow. Yep. Yeah, for bubbly back then, um, yeah. So, so, Andre, it's going to be my turn here. No, and- I've got a good one. I've got a good one. I, I need to. No, no, you've had two in a row. Uh, but yeah. I, it's, it's a good one. I promise it's a good one. All right, let's, let's hear it. Okay, so Angela, you talked about how when you were learning about the winemaking that you had, like they, you were learning from scratch and that Niagara was learning from scratch. What was the yes. turning point? What was the turning point when you feel like you figured out what it is we're supposed to be doing in Niagara? 2017, right? <laughs> <laughs> that, was, that was a difficult vintage. No, um, the turning point was you know all of us had some history and we're you know and 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 and, um, and why make some of the pioneers like the late Carl Kaiser who was a mentor you know and defining his style with Pinot Noir for example but the turning point came in the 2000s um, after especially we had the great 2002 the short crop year of 03 when everything got wiped out and in 05, except for us, we had a full crop there at Cave Spring on our site, but everywhere else there were no grapes. And and then in a cold, when you when you have a short crop year, you don't get proper phenolic ripeness because it's all over the place. So anyway, dealing with those vintages, so the turning point was then it really sunk in what we need to work with. And also uh, that, um, we were being too heavy-handed in our winemaking. Okay, uh, I said with, with the Bordeaux, with the wood approach, or you know, not being confident enough with our still wines that we had to leave residual in there. Why? You know, first of all, that masks a lot of winemaking faults, uh, unless you're doing a riesling and there's a lot of acidity in there and stuff like that. And it, it, by then we had so in the 2000s, like our first vintage was 86. Yeah, so you know, after 15, 15 years, almost 20 years, you have enough experience, but, and, but the experience comes from not just the winemaking, but working with the same parcel of land. You know, Carl Kaiser with the Montague Vineyard, for example, Paul Boss Sr. with his site, our site, you know, those of us who worked with our own grapes, our own sites, and then... If it's a cool year or you cold a cooler year or warmer year, you know sort of what to expect after 20 plus years, and um, that was the learning experience, really. And also, every site is different. Our heavy clay soils, fruit is totally different than what you get from other places in Niagara on the lake. I'm not going to say one's better than another, but they are very, very different. And uh, and the only way you can really learn is by working with that same thing year after year after year. So you were ahead of your time, uh, really, when you, I think it, you said in 86, you, your core variety, by, by 86, your core varieties were Chardonnay, Riesling, Pinot Noir, and Gamay. That's what we had in the ground, yeah. So by 86, you have Gamay in the ground. Oh, yeah. And you realize that Gamay is the way to go, which is my way of saying it's time to pour some Gamay and talk talk about why so early on you thought Gamay was the way to go. 
here, here. Um, Holy crap. How is this made? How is this made? So the thing is with the gamay back then, I, that, that's, I have to give Len credit. He's the one that planted it. And, uh, but uh, we um, making it, it's, it, again, it's, it's a variety that you can ripen. So it wasn't that much work. The problem with gamay, it's a lot of work in the vineyard because it's a variety that tends to crop heavily, to crop t- too much. So you have to spend a lot of time thinning it down. But we found that, so gamay is not a tannic variety. So even in a cool year, we're talking about the capsule if you can't ripen it. It's green and tannic in a cool year, right? Not so much so with gamay. What you'll get, as you get in this one here, and I was tasting, that's why I'd open it before I sort of check it. Um, you know, there's some acidity in gamay, and um, I like that tartness, our style, and I wouldn't call it sour cherry. That's really that ripe, bright red berry character, or those um, tart cherries. Even a little beetroot going and on. Beetroot, very oh, much so, as with Pinot Noir. You hit the nail on the head there with this one, Michael. Yeah, it's 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 a lovely. It's it it's it's very quaffable. It's one of those wines you can easily chill and mm-hmm. and, and and enjoy it. But my my question is, you only make the one gamay. Am I correct on that? Yeah, and it's and it's and it's crazy because the um the concentration in this, I know we did the podcast with with Thomas, and I know as a wine writer, I'm trying really hard to stop comparing what we're doing in in Niagara to what we're doing in France or wherever. But like this is definitely a crew Beaujolais style. Like this has a little bit of aging potential. The tannins are well integrated, but still a little bit beefy. But there's a lot of concentration of dark black fruit on like dark cherry on the mid palate it's really really well done but as, as far you. as i remember it, it you only make one or you say no, you make two? So we're back to two so okay. and thank you it, it has aging potential from a decent vintage you get at least a half a dozen years 10 years so we used to make two gamays always our own fruit but uh, had an older block which we had to pull out and so we didn't have enough gamay because we used to make an estate and then what we call Niagara Peninsula, now it's Niagara Scarborough. Always our own fruit, right? And this one is Niagara Scarborough. Yeah, it's our fruit. So we didn't have enough. We're back to making the estate, which simply means older vines. You know, we have our lines. It's all uh, almost all our fruit, 95% of our fruit, some neighbors. So it's older vines and a bit older yields and, you know, a bit more maybe barrel contribution. And tell you about the aging potential of Gamay. A dear friend who's a winemaker... Uh, in the industry, very well known. Who will remain nameless somehow. I have to, I have to. Okay. <laughs> so I had him over for dinner last fall, and I poured him the uh, wine blind, and he said, I said, yes, he said, Northern Rome. I said, really? He said, yeah, he said, it's peppery, it's smoky, it's got some spice in there. So I showed him the bottle. It was our 2007 Gamay Estate. Okay. Drinking well. I'm drinking that now at yeah. home too, okay? Well, so there you go. And that last year was 219, right? So 12 years. So you're you're back to making the estate yeah, we're as released of what year? 2019. Okay. Not bottled. So uh, in the 29th, and, and from now on, twenty also 2012, but from the 2019 vintage on, we'll be back with the uh, our, our estate level of uh, Gamay. Excellent. Yeah. Excellent. It's a, it's, a, it's a lovely wine. So obviously since 86, you've had it in the ground. You've had, uh, what is that, 24 years to work with it? Yeah. Am I right, Andre? No, 24. Uh, is that right? Yeah, no, 34. 34. I'm I'm, so that block is gone now, and we're working with blocks that planted in uh, the 90s, the mid 90s. And that's so, the estate stuff. Yeah, yeah, that will be the estate. It's always been this stuff, but it will be the estate yeah. stuff now. And planting quite a bit. I planted quite a bit. We planted quite a bit of gamay in the last couple of years. So we have two more blocks coming into production. And you've and you've always been happy. I mean, I'm going to assume love. I mean, it's very versatile. You can do anything with Gamay. You can turn it into sparkling. There are those who use it for sparkling, too, yep. or rosé and stuff like that. Uh, you said, look, it's a no-brainer. You know what Gamay reminds me of? A lighter style of Pinot Noir. You said, you're right, chill it down. It meant, you know, summertime, bird on the barbecue, salmon or whatever, pizza in the winter. It, it, it's not tannic, so 
and it and it, and it does benefit from being you know a few degrees cooler. Yeah, I and look, I can still taste this gamay now after we're talking. The long it's still there. Yeah. yeah, it's 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 a it's a lovely version. And eighteen being so-so uh, kind of vintage, decent vintage. Yeah. It was a low crop vintage, correct. But it's also uh, one of those vintages that that early ripening grapes did well, late ripening grapes. But you don't have that problem, right? No, so. no. Yeah, it, eighteen was okay. What happened in eighteen? It got too warm in in October, and things melted. Not us, where they got greedy and they had too big, heavy of a crop. Uh, Thanksgiving twenty eighteen was thirty degrees. I remember. I was in vineyards, not ours. Was that 18 or 17? 17 was the no, miracle. No, 2017 was a miracle. Yeah. It was so cold. Yeah. And then, then we it had got the nice. Yeah. Yeah. 18 is was it was 30 degrees on, on Thanksgiving. I remember it also raining a lot in the in the in the, in the fall, wasn't it? A very that was rainy. Uh, 18. Yeah. It rained. 17 rained up until the fall, yeah. <laughs> and then I didn't think we were going to make wine in 17. And then we fit, we harvested mid-November. Yeah, we made some very good wines. Yeah, Seventeen turned out to be a great vintage. Surprisingly, yeah. it's going to surprise a lot of people. Andre, where would you like to go next? Oh, I asked my three questions in a row. I'm I'm okay right now. I'm actually. Oh, you're I I jumped ahead to to Cabernet Franc. Mm-hmm. And I'm just enjoying that right now. It's it reminds right. me. It so reminds maybe me. Maybe we should jump. Me. Uh, jump a bit to that. I will jump there too. Uh, Angelo's still enjoying his. Uh, his I gimmick. took a sip there. Yeah. Geez. That's all. He, thanks a lot, Andre. You didn't even give him a chance to uh, to really no, no, I drink sipped, that. I sipped it. Um, so now we're going to jump ahead to the uh, to the Cabernet Franc. Obviously, I think it's 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 pretty much. This is the 18. Yeah. This is a staple at. Um, uh, at at K Springs, I find your Pinots are always consistently good. Uh, obviously, your Rieslings, uh, the Gamays are 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 good. I never thought of you guys as Gamay, although you've been making them for a long time. It's not one of those things that I think a lot of people go, "Hey, K Springs Gamay." Mm. Uh, but Cap Franc is definitely something I I always think about you guys it, for. It looks like we're especially getting especially at state level, which it, is actually which is really good stuff. It looks like we're getting a sneak peek though, because what we have in our hands is not the estate level, but what's listed on the Cave Spring website is still the 2017, and we've got the 2018 yeah, no. in our hands. Okay, so what we have here, the 2017s on, this is the 18, which will be released this fall. Yeah. The 17 is out now, but yeah. um, yes, I'm talking to Tom, you know, <laughs> there. I asked him, you know, what we should be tasting here, what's coming out. So this is the 18, not released uh, it's the follow-up to the 17. Yeah, it's not a state, um, but this is Niagara Escarpment again, so it's all our fruit, 2018, and it's still a very young wine, as you taste. I find it still brooding. That's the yep. word I use. Okay, dark red berry fruit, in, you know, and on a palate, and you get, you can still get that barrel con. You get that lead pencil, that shaving and stuff yep. like that. Okay. So it's still very, very young. And there, there's, I, I'm getting a kind of an herbaceous characteristic okay. as well. Mm -hmm. But not like Andre, it's yeah. not it's not bell pepper though. It's like no, it's, no, no. It's, it's, a, it's roasted it's a kind sage and thyme. I don't know, some kind of herbal mm -hmm. note, but not not bell pepper. Yeah, I'm, I'm no, gonna say I'm gonna say it's uh, yeah, I'm gonna say it's like it's like roasted sage and, and thyme, like after it's been on a barbecue. But it doesn't have that like meatiness. With a touch of with a touch of raspberry and tobacco, which is yeah. what I always expect from Cab Franc. Yeah. Uh, I, so, I don't know. I don't know if it's just the fact that this smells so much like my mother's um, homemade jam that uh, all I get off the nose is is raspberry. It reminds me of my mom's my mom's jam. What, okay. what, what kind of jam is your mother making? Is she trying to put you to sleep? It's a raspberry jam. Oh, yeah. No. Fermented fruit that she was using in the gym. But look, as I said, this is not released yet, this wine, right? So it is a bait. I'll tell you, you come back to this in 10 years, because I know what I'm drinking yeah. now, okay? Yeah. Uh, drinkable, it's approachable. Yeah. In half a year, it'll start to open up a bit more. That's why I pulled the cork, but I come just to taste it, right? Yeah. And, uh, but when I say it's still brooding, it's, yeah, it's still, you know, coming together there. But, I mean, again... Yeah, you, know, you can do it with Cab Franc. So, Cab Franc, when did it go into the ground? And you guys figure out now this is this is the not the vine great hospitals. Wonder. What was that under? When was the year that it was Cab Franc is, is not a vine hospital vine? But this is like okay. So we, we planted we planted Cab Franc in um, 
and went in with Merlot and Cab Sauve in 89. He planted it in 89. And um, and we worked with that. And then we had planted a lot of Merlot, not Cab Sauve. And when we figured it out, I guess, um, I didn't finish pulling out, we didn't finish pulling out Merlot till 2013. Because you just, you know, it's vine hospital, but can't pull out everything at once. Uh, but Cap Franc, um, so we planted some money and we planted in the 90s. It's a great block. Um, yeah, so we figured out it wasn't a vine hospital. Sorry, after 03 and 05, those cold, cold winters there in short crop, my goodness, it, it, it came through. Um, so that's, we figured out it wasn't a vine hospital. And then after 2014, that cool year, when, cause at Cuvée, uh, the experts tasting, I should say, we had the cap front. I, I had a whole flight there of uh, vert. They invited me because I did a vertical of, of Cap Franc, and they were surprised by the 2014. But it was after 03 and 05 that we figured out it wasn't a vine hospital for Cap Franc. Merlot got wiped out. Cap Sauve, not so much. And I'm not, I don't know enough about, you know, uh, uh, the physiologist stuff, but Cap Sauve seems to have genetically a shorter lifespan than than uh, the other some of the other varieties especially cab franc maybe because of the colder winters i don't know but um yeah by by the mid 2000s we knew we could do cab franc no problem i got nothing. Andre, no i'm good i'm good else? i'm good right now this cabernet franc's delicious all right so i do have one more usually i only have two but Today I actually uh, pulled out something really I think might be interesting for Angelo to try. It's uh, it's a half bottle, so he's going to assume that it's something uh, uh, something sweet. Uh, oh, I don't think be, yeah. I don't think you've ever put anything in a half bottle that wasn't right. And uh, so and this this I, I I think this was pretty unique to uh, to K Spring. So here we go. All right. Here we go. I won't look, see, Porsche. He's not looking. I don't know, Andre, if you can hear that pouring into the glass. I can. Oh, it okay. actually sounds pretty good. Yeah, for once oh. you've done competent audio recording, Michael. Good for you. This is a no-brainer, this one, because we only made it one or two years. Oh, well, does he got it? Well, it's... it's, it's uh, uh, no, maybe not. Let me get it. No, no, hang on. No, no. I am known for, for throwing curveballs, and, and even when you're right, I'd say you're wrong no, until you're I'm wrong. wrong. I'm wrong. I get the um, I get the dates on there, the dried dates, big time. Huge. Huge. That dry fruit character. Nope. The color, though, this has got to be old. Okay, what is the color? Don't just say the color. Let's describe the color. Come on. It's kind of like a tawny port. Yep. Okay, keep going. Look at it. It's got that, that brownish look to it. Tawny Portis, um, but you can see right through it, like right through to my shoe, my finger. It uh, imagine, um, I guess, uh, like like water with just a hint of brown food coloring in it or something. Andre, this is kind of shockingly, cle almost clear. So the fact that you're right, a Tawny Port, you very much so. So you would think it's just oxidized and stuff, but it's not. Mm -mm. It's amazing. Um, you know about I said all that dried fruit character. <laughs> this is this is a heck of a lot better than I thought it was going to be. <laughs> By looking at the color inside, I wouldn't want to taste it. But excuse the word. <laughs> all right, uh, uh, Andre, you're missing something really special here. Yeah. Okay. Rub it in. Yeah. No, I always do. Mm. This is one of those ones that I'm like, I don't know if I, I should pour this for Angelo. So this is you still you can very, just very get low. on with it. What uh, like what is it say? Well, it's, I'm waiting for Angelo to get it. It's a nice wine, but um, what vintage? Tell me the vintage. No, you got to guess that part. What, what do you think? Do you think it's early a, 2000s? But do you think it's a Riesling ice wine, a Vidal ice wine? We've only made three ice wines: okay. Riesling, early Vidal, and then a Shannon. One or two years. Okay, I think this is going to shock it out of you. Oh come Are on, you ready? guys. So it is that. First, I said it was going to be the Cabernet Franc. So I said I've only made it once, but I it's not the flavor profile that I would expect. It is a select late harvest 2005 Cabernet. So uh, Angelo just said it's made from Cabernet Franc. 
Uh, I have a sugar code level of eight to nine, which I wrote down on that. And uh, Andre, this thing is absolutely outstandingly good. That's what I said. Remember, the first thing I said, I only made it once. Yeah. So that's why I said Capron. Yeah. Color. But then when I tasted it. It tastes like an old Riesling. That's it. It tastes like I haven't I haven't had that in a while. I thought, yeah, first when I looked, I go, that's Cab Franc. Yeah. I told you, I think maybe it made it two years, not yeah. once. But it doesn't taste like that. No. Uh-huh. Uh, Andre, I swear to God, he's right. It's got fig and yeah, the, fig. the red fruit's almost gone. Uh, dates, figs. Uh, there's a there's kind of like a candied almond praline note to it. So it just tastes like a really old Riesling ice wine. And uh, it's, yeah. it's it's Cabernet Franc. I gotta go find some in our cellar. Hopefully we have some of that stuff. Left. All right, so we've we've cracked the 60 minute mark here, but I do have one more question for Angelo before we, we wrap this up. It sounds like okay. based on the conversation that we've had that you did go to the School of Hard Knocks to help lay the foundation for the industry as we see it today. What advice would you give to the new wineries that are starting in the industry, whether it's actually young people running them or it's just people with, with money coming in and trying to lay roots, what advice would you give them to make sure they're headed in the right direction? Okay. The advice I would give them, because I've seen, unfortunately, some have not succeeded, is don't come in and try something new just for the sake of trying to be new or different. There are those that have come in, I remember in conversation, they came to Cape Spring, Len and I were there, and they said, we're not gonna do Riesling or Chardonnay because you do that and other varieties. So they planted some different varieties and those vineyards are, the wineries are gone, the vineyards are dead, okay? I know you have to make a mark somehow and a reputation, but you can't do it by trying to bring something new in here Every great wine producing region of the world, right, hangs its winemaking shirt and cap on what? A couple of varieties, okay? Some only one. And uh, so learn, study what the old people have, you know, what, what they have done and, and look at the mistakes they have made. That's not how we succeeded here. The mistakes, in my case, Semyon and Shed and other things like that. And see how stylistically, man, maybe you can take that in a different direction with the grape varieties that work best here. You don't have to imitate or copy Cave Spring or whoever, you know, uh, Stratus or whatever. And, um, and yeah, you, you have to make your own mark here. But don't get f- focused too much on I'm going to do something new here, right? Just for the sake of, you know, uh, we need to sell wine because none of those wineries have, are, are around anymore and those vineyards are gone. So, um, you know, it, and if you want to do something else, then, you know, go to the Southern Rome if you want to. Or, like, for example, Sangiovese or Nebbiolo. Those varieties need 10 months. I mean, bud break is in, you know, early spring in March, and they don't harvest till October. What the hell are we trying to do with those great varieties here? And they're only learning to hunter. It's only in the last decade, actually, they've got a handle on ripening them well there, right? So um, it, it if you want does, to work with those varieties, go somewhere else. It does sound like you're making a backhanded comment towards the Passamento there, and I know that you've made a Passamento wine in the past. Are, are, are you... Still, still makes it to this still, day. Still do, we still do, but I don't make an Amarone. No. I've never said we're making Amarone style, and we do a Passamento with one grape variety. I've done a lot of research, and uh, we did a lot of different varieties. I tried Cap So it doesn't work. Cap Franc works great. This happens they use it in a Veneto, too, don't yep. they, for Passamento? And... Um, Back then, we played with it. Yeah, but we're, we're doing a passimento with the varieties of good. I was looking at um, Corvina and Rondinella and stuff like that. There's not a hope in hell. I have a friend. It's Mario Pingue, mm-hmm. great guy, senior. He planted some. It was green in October. Pelletari okay. is making uh, okay, the, only, so the only one that's... It's, 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 okay. it's, it's yeah. a pretty yeah. good wine, but they made it. 
in a hot vintage, right? Yeah. So that that it's gonna it's yeah. gonna ripen. And you back you back blend a little bit of fresh juice into the year wine. Yes. Yeah. So I don't. I I used to do a hundred percent of Passimento, but we go back to that. Maybe I think it's just overboard with the wine. First of all, it's too alcoholic, and. Uh, so it's the same vineyard, same block of grapes, Cap Franc, same thing. And some, it's regular harvest, and some we do a passimento. Um, and yeah, is it to do something different? Sort of, but that's a little bit. We're working with the tried and true variety that works well here. And I'm not trying to make an Amarone, because it, it's not going to work, because Amarone is, is, is Valpolicella, different varieties, and it's up in the hills there and stuff like that. So just like... You know, to, we've gone are the days where our Riesling is like the Mosul or Pinot Noirs are like Burgundy. No, they're Niagara, and that's it. We found our, our found our place uh, with those. So, um, yeah, and I'll continue making a Passimento. It, you, you know it's what? To play with. I, I really, Plus, it's Italian. For I, God's I, sakes, it's got to do it. And that's it. We're I, my parents the Eastern Veneto, so West. Besides, I have to go back every year. <laughs> it's a work trip. To except, go except I, I absolutely year. hate to hate to cut you off at this point, but that's such a perfect place to end this to say where that that Niagara has discovered its its identity, and part of that is is thanks to you. But I feel like we've barely scratched the surface of what could be a much longer conversation. So we have to have you back at some point, perhaps sometime in the next six months when I can get down there and Michael can share his tasty treats with us. But Angelo, thank you so much for giving us all of this time. Um, Yeah, I'm looking forward to listening to this back again because I feel like there's just so much in this. Well, I think we should give Angelo some time to... uh... Uh, break into the cheese tray. So, Angelo, thank you very much for uh, for being here. Gentlemen, thank you so much uh, for having me and, you know, gets me thinking about the past, right, and what we've done. So, thank you so much. Man, I'm really enjoying these long-form interviews that we've been doing, but I don't know about you. I'm noticing that there's a significant lower amount of Chardonnay talk happening on this podcast lately. And thank the Lord. I guess that's what happens when you take over the organizing and planning of the interviews. Yes, and I am so happy for it. I got some other ones coming up for you, Andre. Oh, okay. Well, I'm going to make sure I sneak a couple of Chardonnay ones in there uh, at some point. Uh, But, man, talking to Angelo, that was a real treat. Um, What a wealth of knowledge. And, uh, you know, I'm still in awe of um, just the pragmatism with how cave spring is run because it, it is one of the larger wineries in the in the province large small wineries but just the um you know the whole idea of getting rid of vine hospitals and the quality of the portfolio across the board um i, I still think it's a winery that's that's fairly underrated i i would i would i would go with the uh, agreement there i guess that's what i'm saying <laughs> is it just is it really that hard to agree with me yes it actually hurts my heart because usually you're talking Chardonnay, so my mind just immediately goes, don't agree with him, don't agree with him, don't agree with him. So anyways, thanks for taking a moment to listen to this podcast. Make sure you check us out on Patreon, patreon.com slash twoguystalkingwine. I'm Andre Pru from andrewinereview.ca, where you will always find some great Chardonnay content. Uh, and you can follow me on social media at Andre Wine Review. And I'm Michael Pincus of michaelpincuswinereview.com, where you will find some Chardonnay content, but it's not all Chardonnay all the time, because I'm not... Andre Prue. Take it away, Michael. Good night. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to Two Guys Talking Wine on iTunes.